Once upon a time, a man had two sons. He decided to give them an inheritance of two plots of land with a firm, solid foundation on each. He also gave them a set of instructions. If you want to build on this foundation correctly, follow these instructions. Some time went on, and eventually, the sons inherited the property. The first son was appreciative of the foundation, and from time to time, he would walk out onto it and be encouraged by just being there, being reminded of his father's love for him and this reminder that he has of his presence. But he decided to do something different. Instead of building on the foundation given to him by his father, he built up his home and his life next to it. Again, he got some good stuff out of just simply walking out and stepping onto that foundation, maybe once a week, enjoying it. But he'd always go back to home and do his own life in his own way. The second son took a different approach. He decided to follow his father's instructions and he built up his home on the foundation given to him by his father, following those same set of instructions. His home wasn't as flashy as his brother's, but even in his going to bed and his rising up, he was constantly reminded of his father's love for him. As always happens in these kind of parables, a storm comes in, right? The storm rolls in for the first son, whose home is not on a solid foundation, it's washed away. He survives and the foundation survives. But everything he had built up apart from that foundation was ruined. The second son, however, weathered the storm in peace. There was difficulty, some things got banged up, but he made it through and his home made it through at the same time as well. He was grateful that he followed his father's instructions and built up his home on that foundation. The last several weeks, we've been in a discussion on eternity, and it's in this larger context of this year-long discussion we've been having as a church around this question of why does it matter? Why do these different aspects in Christianity matter? We've been studying eternity, watch through heaven and hell and you know, how to share our faith and, and how to actually have faith for the first time, but today, as we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, as our key text, we're looking at the intersection between eternity and hope, and how those two play together. Our big idea for today, our kind of guiding point that I want us to explore as we walk through this passage, is this. Our living hope anchors us in and activates us for eternity. Our living hope anchors us in and activates us for eternity. Before we read our passage, I wanna just give a little bit of context to the text that we're gonna read. It's important, right? First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians who are dealing with exile and real persecution, really difficult stuff that they're going through, sometimes family separation, sometimes economic hardship, sometimes just straight-up murder, like people are getting killed. Um, and so he's writing to this group of people to encourage them but also to provide them with a lot of practical insight. The book of 1 Peter is remarkably practical for the everyday Christian life. So here's a bit of homework. Uh, after today, I would encourage you to read through the rest of 1 Peter. It'll probably take you about 20, 30 minutes, and it's absolutely worth your time. It absolutely is. Uh, but before you get on to reading the rest of the book, let's kind of look at how it starts out. 
Let's read it all the way through. Starting in verse three, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven character of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. In verses three and four, we find just the namesake of our study this morning, living hope. And that whole idea of living hope and how it's all anchored in the gospel and Jesus is not only just foundational for our discussion today, it's foundational for the rest of this letter. It all flows, all that practical insight that you're gonna read later this afternoon, it all flows from this statement right here. And in fact, it's supposed to be the foundational statement for our lives as well. Our lives flow from this living hope. What's interesting as well, though, the way that he starts out this letter, right? He is writing to people dealing with really, really severe trauma that they're going through, right? But he writes it out by, he starts it out by worshiping, saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out this letter of encouragement with a statement about what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us. What he's trying to tell the people here is that we worship in light of our Savior and not our circumstances. Whatever you might be going through, God has done something worthy of worship. And what has he done? Well, according to this, he has given us a new birth, a new lease on life, a new start, I can't help but think a couple weeks ago, we went through John chapter three, verse 16, and Nicodemus and Jesus are having that famous exchange, and they're having this conversation. Jesus says, hey, in order to follow me, you must be born again. Peter must have overheard that conversation or heard tell of it. And so here he's echoing it once again. Jesus has given us a new birth into a living hope. It's something that we live in, not next to. We don't live adjacent to hope. We live in living hope. But before we get further, as we're discussing and breaking down just that statement of living hope, I thought it would be worthwhile for us to discuss some definitions. You know, I love me some definitions. And so what I did, like any good millennial, was I went to Google and asked Google, define hope for me. And here's what Google came up with. It says, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to be true or a certain thing to happen. That's what Google said. I probably pulled it from some dictionary somewhere, right? Then I did what all the cool kids are doing, and I went to ChatGPT, and I asked it, hey, what's hope, Mr. Robot AI? And it said this, hope is a powerful and positive emotion that involves a belief or desire for a favorable outcome or the anticipation of something better in the future. 
I thought about reading that in a robot voice, but I was like, that's too far, Connor. Don't do that. Uh, so we've asked the robots what they think about what hope is, but I think if you and I were having just a conversation, hey, how do you explain hope? I think probably what we would say is this, it's just this general longing for something to be true. Right, like I hope it cools off outside. It is hot outside, right? It was interesting, at the first service I said, I hope that it rains later. It probably won't because it's so hot outside. And then I walk out to go to Sunday school and it's raining and I was like, that's funny, God. Man, I see you, I see what you're doing. Uh, I'm not saying that was my fault, but it was, it was a cool moment. Um, but yeah, we can have these hopes, right? There's just this vague desire for something to be true. Is that the kind of hope that Peter is talking about here? I don't think so, because you can't build a life on that kind of hope. You can't found everything on a vague hope versus a living hope. A living hope is rooted in eternal, spiritual things. It's rooted in the gospel. That's what he's saying in verses three and four. A vague hope says maybe. Maybe it'll cool off. Maybe things will work out. Maybe the money will come through. But a living hope says certainly. Certainly I am redeemed. Certainly I have hope in the future because of what Christ has done for me. It says certainly. And they can say that because a living hope is not rooted in some vague optimism. But it rather, it takes the hand, the nail-pierced hand of a flesh and blood savior and follows him expectantly wherever he leads. It puts its hope in that certainty of Jesus. Another way of looking at it is a living hope is an ember. When the fire dies down, when things get hard, it's something that can burst back into flames in the right circumstances if the Holy Spirit acts on it. It's an ember. Another thing that it is, and this is where you come in, we're gonna do a little exercise this morning. Um, don't worry, we're not running around the sanctuary or anything. I want you to breathe in and hold it and breathe out. A vague hope holds its breath for something to be better, but a living hope breathes. A living hope actually allows you to walk through life breathing in and breathing out. There's a tension in that holding of the breath, isn't there? And sometimes we live in that tension in this life, holding our breath, hoping that things turn out. In fact, we have a saying about that, right? Don't get your hopes up. Don't hold your breath. But we can have our hopes in Jesus and be encouraged by it. This is a real foundation that we can build on. And it all has that starting point in living hope. And this is continued even into verse five. Verse five, Peter uh, tells us that our faith, our hope is being guarded. It's actively shielded by God's power. So we're not just in some fortress that we have to just weather the storms in necessarily, but we have a bodyguard that walks with us through life. No matter what we encounter, he's got our back. God is actively guarding his children. Sometimes we can step away from that guarding. Sometimes we can say, no thanks, bodyguard. But God offers it to us nonetheless. We have active protection. We can be at peace because our eternity is secure. We know that in the end, when all things have come to pass, everything will be okay. 
if we're in Christ. And it's a beautiful statement. That's a good hope to have. But so what? How does that actually impact my day to day? When I walk out those doors or those doors or those, whatever doors you leave, there's a million doors in this church, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. Whatever door you walk out of today, how is it gonna impact you when the rubber meets the road? Well, that's exactly what Peter gets into in the rest of this discussion here. In particular, verses six and seven, where he says this, in all this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I want you to recall who he's writing to. He's not just writing to us in an air-conditioned room in a place where we can freely practice our religion. He's writing to people who are in dire situations with really big anxiety that they're dealing with. Maybe you're dealing with big anxiety. I struggle with anxiety. These people are dealing with hard stuff and here he's writing these statements to them. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. But what he is telling us, you know, we've, our big idea was that our living hope anchors us in eternity and it also activates for us, us for eternity. And Peter is saying that one of the key ways that we are activated for eternity is worship. A worship in response to the same trials that we are experiencing. Why is this? Why can we worship in that way? Because they refine us, is what he's saying. These trials and these things that we go through can refine us. And I want us to draw our attention to two main phrases in these verses. In verse six, there's this phrase that says, for a little while, for a little while. Time flies when you're having Fun, right? But it slows to a crawl when you're suffering. When you're going through real pain, real trauma, real difficulty, it just feels like you're in like a pocket dimension and just nothing is, is moving. And all you do is hurt. Yet, Peter says, for a little while. I don't know if you've noticed, and if you haven't, like, I guess I'm flattered, it's nice of you to say that, uh, but I have braces, I wear braces. And I actually had braces back in high school as well. I wore them for about three and a half, four years. I didn't get them off in time for senior pictures. Uh, so I'm not bitter, it's fine. Um, but I had braces all throughout high school. And uh, what I learned, I got those off when I was around 18. And what I learned is that I'm just such a special snowflake of a man that in some cases, like me, your jaw will just grow asymmetrically just a little bit after your 18th birthday. So just in time for me to get those braces off, my jaw just decided to throw another wrench into the situation. And so here I am, round two of braces. Um, periodically, what you have to do if you have braces, you have to go into the orthodontist and they root around in your mouth and get it all reconfigured and put the wire back in and like screw everything back in place. And it's not super fun. Uh, it's not my idea of a good time. But um, inevitably what happens is I will leave my orthodontist and I'll look at my watch and walk out to my car and like 20 minutes, 40 minutes have passed in total. It's like a short appointment, right? But while I'm in that chair dealing with whatever tools that they're using and there's like wires just sticking out of my face, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's just 20 minutes, it's no big deal. 
Feels like a big deal. Time slows through a crawl when we're going through things that we don't like. In a less fun example, I think we've all experienced this feeling if we've ever been in a hospital waiting room. A hospital waiting room is intense. They wheel your loved one through those doors and you wait. And it feels like your breath is just caught. I think that's the closest to eternity that I've ever felt in this life, just waiting in a hospital waiting room. Maybe you've been there. No matter how long, in reality or how long it feels, the suffering that you go through is, the good news is that we have a living hope that walks with us and waits with us through the suffering, through the difficult times. What Peter is saying here ultimately is that eternity is longer. <laughs> Eternity's longer than your longest trial. Whether it be a lifelong thing that you're dealing with or just something that's happened this week. Eternity is longer. And that's not to discount that trial or say that it's no big deal or it doesn't matter. But really what I think this does is it magnifies the glorious hope of the gospel. No matter how big your suffering and trial is, God's bigger. He cares about you. He cares about the thing that you're facing when you walk out the doors today. He can turn those difficult things that we face into a testimony. He can move in our lives in really remarkable ways. He's not the designer of our suffering or evil, but he's so good that he can redeem it. Will you allow him to redeem your situation? Will you trust him and, and give it over to him and say, Lord, prove your goodness to me in this moment? The other phrase that I wanna draw our attention to is in verse seven where it says, this idea of a proven genuineness of your faith. A proven genuineness of your faith. Something is not proven until it is tested. I could be up here and make a claim that I can run a seven minute mile. Why'd you laugh? Um, <laughs> you know why. Uh, I can't run a seven minute mile. I would need a lot more water than what's in this little water bottle right here uh, to just even finish, right? So please don't test me on that. That's not a claim that I'm making. Peter knows something about claims of faith, doesn't he? In Matthew 26, he makes a claim to Jesus and says, no matter what happens, Lord, I'm with you. I'm gonna follow you. And yet, he denies him three times. His faith falls short. Peter knows something about a proven genuineness of your faith. He knows something about the grace of God when our faith falls short. But what does a proven faith really look like? I think we can see it in this passage. If you scan over it, it's a steady hope in the midst of the trials that we're facing. We have a hope in the goodness of God. And the response to God in worship even if our circumstances don't line up. Because we know he's good. We know that he has won for us on the cross a new birth. And when we're doing all that, I think what kind of surrounds us is this eternal heavenly glow, like we're walking in heaven right now, like we're living in eternity even right now. That's what a proven faith looks like. It navigates the world in light of eternity. And that sounds delusional, right? Right? Life's hard. We hit 
difficult things. And it would be delusional if it was false, but it's not. It's true. The Bible's true. The grace is true. Sometimes God allows us to go through difficulties so that he can prove his goodness to us. So he can prove that he's bigger than us. He's bigger than our own strength. He can prove his guidance and his provision and his presence to us. Are you watching for him in the midst of your storm? He's there. He's listening. So part of an activated hope, like we've been discussing, is how we respond to trials. But the other part is in how we love Jesus, which is what the next part of this passage is talking about in verses eight and nine. In verse eight, I think it's interesting, Peter makes this remark about, man, you guys are incredible. You haven't even like physically met Jesus. I have, and yet you believe in him and you love him. He's talking about in verse eight. Because he remarks on that because it's a new thing at the time. It's the next generation of Christians that are rising up. And that torch has been carried even to this sanctuary this morning. So in a way, Peter is writing to you and to me. And it's a remarkable thing, this faith and this belief that take us beyond just a foundation into a Christian life. Believing in Jesus is not a vague hope like we've talked about before. It's a belief in a specific savior to do a specific thing for a specific person, you. It's trusting in him to save your soul, to redeem your life, and change the trajectory of what you have ahead of you forever. Have you put your faith in Jesus? We don't have this vague hope in Jesus. We gotta have a specific trust in him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. But how do we love Jesus? I was at a concert last night for one of my friends, and he shared this term, which is very interesting, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna pull it full, whole cloth from him. I think he heard it from somebody else, so it's fair game. Uh, he used the term Buick, which means brought up in church kids. Kids who are brought up in church, a Buick. Uh, we've heard, if, you, if you're a Buick like me, you've heard this phrase of love Jesus probably a lot. But what does that actually mean? How do we love Jesus for real in a practical way? Well, Jesus explains how to love him in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So for Jesus, his love language is actually obedience. And that's not to be tyrannical, but instead it's saying, Lord, I trust that your will is better than my will, that your way is better than my way, and I'm gonna walk in that. I'm gonna trust that. I'm gonna orient my life accordingly to who you are and how good you are. Not my will, but your will. We love Jesus through obedience. After you finish 1 Peter this afternoon, which we're all gonna do, right? Uh, after you finish 1 Peter this afternoon, I would encourage you to read 1 John. 1 John is an incredible commentary on what it means to love God and how loved by God we are. Both really short books. It won't take you more than an hour. And it's the best way you could spend your hour. I mean, other than being at church right now, but you know what I mean. Check them out. Read them afterwards. What happens though, when we love and believe in Jesus in this way? What it says is that we rejoice with like inexpressible and glorious joy. And that sounds great. Like I would love for the rest of my day to be categorized by inexpressible and glorious joy, wouldn't you? It's possible. We have our hope rooted in Jesus. If we remember what he has done for us and how we have something glorious to look forward to, we could have that kind of inexpressible and glorious joy in our worship. 
Because the thing is this, guys, the Christian life is not supposed to be some understated, dull, grit your teeth and get through it kind of life. They're supposed to be rejoicing, joy, and enjoyment. And it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to deal with suffering. But that ember of living hope, still burning in your heart, getting you through it, the hope that you have to look forward to, we can have this kind of joy in the midst of the circumstances and trials that we face. And we get this by being in the presence of God. That's why it's important to be at worship every week, but it's also important to have your own time with God where you just sit there with no agenda in an unhurried way and listen to him. Be in his presence this week. You will not regret it. He will fill you with his spirit and it'll be absolutely worth it. And this joy comes, as it says in verse nine, as a result of receiving the end goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, which is an interesting statement. Because if you're not careful, I think you can see eternity as just something that happens later. I just gotta get through this life and then I'll be good. Everything will be fine in the end. And that's true. But this goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, isn't something just for later. It's something for right now. When I was in college, um, I, wor I was working as part of a ministry that traveled around, did Disciple Now weekends and things like that. But then afterwards, I got a job, my first retail job at the mall at a place called Tivana. Anybody remember Tivana? A few sophisticated people in the room. Um, I, and I say that because as I worked at Tivana, they trained me to be uh, what is it, pretentious? Yeah, pretentious about tea. Uh, that was the whole thing because what I had to try to do as a salesperson at Tivana was convince you that like buying two ounces of this tea was worth like upwards of $40. Crazy. Here's the sales pitch. Just, you didn't ask, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Uh, the sales pitch is that, well, you can re-steep the tea multiple times and you can get up to like 200 cups of tea out of that 40 bucks. Who does that, right? Who like keeps their tea like long-term? Some people do, no judgment. Uh, I tried to do it and I still couldn't make it work out. Um, even with my employee discount, it didn't really make sense. I really only worked there for seven months and I didn't super enjoy it if I'm honest because I'm not really much of a salesperson, evidently. Um, and just that introversion, all of that stuff, it, it wasn't my favorite place to work. But I was graduating from UTA, my degree in information systems, and I had gotten a job offer from a tech company in Arlington to go work there after graduation. And man, putting in that two weeks notice gave a light at the end of the tunnel. It's like, okay, I can deal with standing outside the tea store and saying free sample, free sample, you know, day in and day out. Uh, I can deal with that for a couple more weeks because of this hope that I have a better job to come. There's a danger in a two weeks notice though right? When you give that two weeks notice, it can be so tempting to just disengage. Whatever. What are they going to do? Fire me? I'm already leaving, right? <laughs> we can have that kind of mindset when it comes to a two weeks notice. And that kind of mindset can extend into our Christian walk as well. Why does it matter? It matters. God has given us responsibilities and instructions on how we're to build our lives in light of eternity. Because of the cross, the good news is that we can give a two weeks notice to suffering and death and the darkness that we face in our lives. 
But that two weeks notice is meant to be an empowering thing for us to move forward and carry out our, our responsibilities well. At the beginning of our talk this morning, I talked through a parable of sorts, um, kind of inspired, obviously, by the parable of the two foundations in uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 26. And the parable that we, the version of this morning, these two sons were given a foundation by their father. For you and me, as Christians, we are given a foundation by Jesus, a foundation of a living hope that we can walk in and rest in the father also provides instructions, right? He says, okay, kids, here's how to build on your home. We're also provided instructions. God gives us instructions on how we're to build our lives as well. And the instructions are this. They're supposed to be built on the gospel. Our lives are supposed to be centered on and built up on the gospel. It's to be the bedrock of our faith. Jesus is the cornerstone and not the accessory. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, as we continue on, he's saying, man, you gotta live this out. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Again, this book is remarkably practical. He's saying, you've been given this foundation, build on it. Don't just build next to it. Christianity and God and, and knowing him and church and community and studying your Bible, it's not just a thing for later. It's not just a thing you do on Sundays. The first son built up his home on the side and would occasionally visit the foundation and he got some peace out of that. But that's not how we're to live our lives. We're supposed to live our lives like the second son, he builds up on top of the foundation. He doesn't go his own way. Verse three, it says that we have a new birth into a living hope. The, the second son lives his life in the hope given to him by his father. Lives inside that hope. When he gets up in the morning, when he goes to bed, he is sleeping on that foundation. Living hope, the gospel, Jesus Christ, should be our bedrock and our cornerstone. Here's a gut check question for you this morning. Does the gospel directly inform your decisions around your career, around your relationships, around the people that you talk to at work or school? Is it guiding those things or is it just something that you kind of think about here and there? It's supposed to be the foundation of everything. So is it? Is it directing your dreams and goals? Both of the sons survive the storm that hits, which is true. If, we're, if our lives are in Christ, he's the one that protects our foundation till the end. But if we build up our life adjacent to the foundation given to us by God, what we build is at risk of being washed away. So build your life on the gospel. It's absolutely worth it. What is, this morning, what is your life founded on? We've talked about all this stuff. We've looked at how a living hope anchors us in eternity and activates us for eternity. But what about you? Is your life founded on that? 
or not. The good news is that God offers us entry into his family this morning, which is what verse three is all about. Because of what Jesus has done, we can have a new birth, a new lease on life, a new start because of Jesus. Here's the problem though. You and I have sin in our life. Sin is simply breaking God's instructions. We live in a broken world. There's a variety of reasons why we sin, but that sin separates us from God. We can't get through. We can't get back into his good graces unless something happens, and something did happen. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. He paid the penalty for our sin on a cross, and three days later, he rose again, laying the foundation and paying a down payment for you and I to have that as well. That inheritance that it talks about at the beginning of this passage is unity with God forever. If you want that inheritance, all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Confession simply says, Lord, be Lord of my life. Not my will, but your will. It's actually making him the one in command, giving him control of your life and then trusting him and following him. That's what it means to believe. Following him no matter where he leads because where he leads is the best for you. Have you done that today? Have you done that ever? God offers it to you freely. Here in a moment, as we respond, you could make that decision in your pew. You can make that decision up here. You could ask us some questions if you need some clarification in the Welcome Center, or you can just reach out throughout the week if you have more questions about that. But that's what it's all about, knowing Jesus, building a life on him, and following him where he leads. Whenever we open God's word, we should not expect to walk away unchanged. So what's your response going to be this morning? Maybe you need to receive your foundation for the first time, like we just talked about. Maybe you need to re-examine and reorient your life on the foundation. Maybe there's been some things that you've been building up without consulting God, without asking him to have the final say. Maybe there's some stuff that you need to move and do a remodel and put it on the foundation. Or maybe this morning, you are building on your foundation. It's hard, there's difficulty in it, but it's growing. And be encouraged, keep walking in that, keep growing in that. As the band comes, I want us to humbly consider the movement of the Spirit this morning. Because here's the thing, as we sing this final song and reflect and be ready for response, if the Spirit of God is not moving in your heart, pray that he moves in somebody else's. I don't mean that callously, but we're supposed to serve one another even in this moment of reflection. So reflect on those three different things. I believe there'll be people up here to receive you as you come if you have a decision to make. But let me close in prayer and let's respond as the Spirit leads. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the living hope that we have in Jesus. I pray that um, in this place, God, under the sound of my voice, that you would speak to people Lord, let them know that you're with them in this suffering. Let them know that uh, they can take a breath in you. 
that they can be at peace because of what you have done on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we depart from this place, as we go wherever you have for us to go, that we would go with joy because of what you've done, Jesus. But Lord, I pray for the person that needs to make a decision this morning, a decision to follow you. I pray, God, that you'd speak to their heart. Draw them in this moment, God. Draw them throughout this week. Lord, give us the strength and the clarity and the boldness to share with those around us, to not let this living hope just be something that we live in, but something we invite others into as well. In your name I pray, amen.